Here with me today, I have Dahlia, born in Iran and currently living in the, in the United States and working as a manager of program management. I'm so glad to have you here, Dahlia. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited to sort of get into your story. I know we've both sort of talked about this off mic, but we have a mutual friend who you know, was a big proponent of trying to get you on the show. So I'm excited to dive into your story. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to get into this story, too. <laughs> So let's start with where in Iran you were born and then where in the United States you currently live. And then if there are any key countries or cities that came in between, let's let's mention those two. Oh, wow. Um, we're going to get right into it then. Okay, so I was born in Tehran in 1977, which was a wonderful year. And then two years later, there was the Islamic Revolution. And my parents actually happened to be um an interfaith marriage so my mother was muslim and my father was jewish and when they got married that wasn't a problem but post-revolution it was a problem and so my mother's whole side of the family had no reason to leave because they were devout muslims and were happy with the change in government but my father's whole family were iranian jews and um they were being persecuted. We had neighbors being killed. Um, I believe that two of my uncles were jailed at some point. So they planned to leave Iran. Um, My family left. My father actually used to help people to arrange their escapes out of Iran. And so he helped arrange ours. It was my mother with my two brothers and myself being the youngest. Mm -hmm. And he stayed behind to continue helping people escape. Um, And we, I think, met up with him, I want to say about a year later. Um, Mm -hmm. But he didn't leave with us as a family. So we left with my mom. We went through the mountains into Turkey. For anyone who's old enough, and I'm going to probably age myself even more than saying I was born in 77, uh, there was that movie called Not Without My Daughter, and it was with Sally someone or another. I don't remember her name. She's an American movie icon. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so she escaped through the mountains into Turkey. And when I first came here, that's what they would always say. They're like, oh, like, not without my daughter. And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it really was because that movie was not a very good depiction. I like to say that Iranians were, um, Iranians in the 1980s were probably the most hated. That's around when we got to America. So, um, it was the Iran-Contra affair, it was the Iran hostage crisis, it was not mm-hmm. fun to be Iranian in the 80s in America. But going back to it, uh, family left, we went to Turkey, we stayed in Turkey, tried to get a visa to come to America, um, got denied, and then we went to Austria, and then we went to the American embassy there, got denied. From there we went to Italy tried again over there, um, got denied. I believe at some point we then went to Israel and we were in Israel for a while and we met my father there. And then I'm not sure if we went back to Italy to come where we finally got 
our visa to come to America. Um, but eventually we got our visa to come to America and then we came to the U.S. in 1982. And so we left in 79 and got here in 82. So we were living as refugees across Europe for all that time. Mostly just my mom with three kids by herself. Um, and then eventually our father joined us. Well, that must have been really tough. Like, how old were you when, like, all of this was happening? Like, when you made the journey to Turkey? Oh, my God. I was, what, two, two and a half years old? Oh, wow. I had the best time of my life. Like, <laughs> I now can imagine how difficult it was for my mom and for my two brothers. My my oldest brother is eight years older than me, so he was about mm -hmm. ten when all of this happened. My other brother was three years older than me. Um, for me, it was the least impacting because it wasn't like I had school to go to. Or, you know what I mean? At that mm -hmm. age, you're still chilling at home with your mom, so like you don't know any better. Whatever you're living is what you're living. Um, but for my two brothers who were removed from school, from a normal home life, from familiar friends and family and all of that, it was very difficult for them. For me, I mean, I, I had the time of my life. And it's funny because I now travel extensively um, whenever I can. Well, obviously not during COVID, but whenever I can, I do travel and I love traveling and I love just being away and I love eating soup. And all of this sounds weird because my family doesn't care as much for it as I do. And I think it's because for them, it wasn't a good experience. And for me, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, I love, you know, I grew up just traveling to all these different countries and seeing all these different things. Um, but for them, they're like, it sucked. It was terrible. You know, probably they have more of an experience of like, just not even caring to get rooted in one place and like trying to get their bearings because they know like a move is coming pretty soon. Yeah, exactly. And like I, both of them speak Hebrew well because they were there for long enough to pick up the language. Because mm. I think that was the place that we were the longest. I think we spent like six months there. Okay. And so they picked up the language. Um, oh, but yeah. That's pretty cool after six months. Yeah. Sort of diving back to get more background on Iran. Is it like a majority Muslim country? Like is the Israeli like a significant minority population? Oh, I mean, yeah. the Jewish population a significant minority. I I don't remember. I think somewhere I read something like ninety five percent of the population in Iran is Muslim. So it is a majority Muslim. And then for the other religions, it's a mix. You've got Jews, you've got Christians, you've got um, a lot of people who are Baha'i. Um, yeah, you have a lot of different Zoroastrians, which was the first religion in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so you have people from all these different religions. And if you think back to it, uh, the Jews in Iran date back to like the Old Testament in Purim. So that was based out of um, Persia. And so they've been there forever, but there's just not a lot of them. Hmm, makes sense. So your family sort of had like a desire of going to the United States. Was that for a specific reason? Did you have any family there already? Or was it just the image of the United States in general? So 
A couple of things. Um, it's really interesting, but when, I, I mean, I could be wrong here, but if, again, if I'm not mistaken, the second richest oil rich country in the world after Saudi Arabia is Iran. And Iran had a ton of money. And back when they were able to trade, um, they had a lot of money. And the Shah, one of the reasons why he was overthrown was because he was trying to westernize and modernize Iran way quicker than the country and the culture was ready to accept it, in my opinion. So what happened was he offered to pay for the education and schooling of any Iranian who wanted to go to the West to study so that they can bring that knowledge back to Iran and make Iran a better place. And so at that time in the 70s, there were a lot of Iranians who were in America and they were studying on the Iranian government's dime. Um, so I had two uncles. My father had one older brother and one younger brother who were already in the United States before the revolution happened. And they stayed here. One of them was out in California. The other one was out in New York. So when the revolution happened and my family was trying to figure out where to go, it was, okay, we can either try to find a, another country to live in, we can go to Israel because that's, you know, the Jewish homeland, or we can go and regroup in America and meet up with our brothers and be together as a family again. And so they chose to come to America. For, like, what are your earliest memories of the United States? Like, where were you? Were you in New York the entire time? Or, yeah, I mean, we came to the United States. Um, it's funny because all of all of my dad's brothers and sisters um, came to the United States over the course of the next I don't know, however many years, and they all came to New York first. And then some of them stayed and settled in New York, and then the other ones went to California. So we became a bi-coastal family anyway. But our family came to New York. We ended up buying a house in Queens. Not a house, an apartment in Queens. I was actually just talking to my mom about this the other day. They took all of the money and everything that they had in savings, and they bought this apartment. Um, that my uncle lived in the same building and the only reason why they were able to get the apartment is because one of the people who sat on the board of the building was an Iranian who knew our family because we had like we couldn't get a mortgage because we had no credit history we didn't speak the language they they didn't have jobs and so my parents came in took every last dime they had to buy us a home to live in and then figured it out after that. But yeah, my earliest memories, I think, would probably be standing at the school bus stop um, and meeting another Iranian girl who I was introduced to, who is still my best friend to this day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I remember meeting her at the bus stop and going to school with her. And yeah, I think that was probably my first memory. Wow, that's that's cool. I think that shows the importance of having these like local links and for migrants like anywhere. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. My my story gets even crazier because um 
like I don't want to say soon after we arrived, but within a year after arriving, my father was feeling ill and he ended up going to the doctor and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And eventually they realized he had cancer. And, um, and so he immediately started doing chemo and radiation and my mom ended up having to, you know, support three children and take care of a sick husband. And we lived in Queens. My father was at a hospital, the Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. And so my mother would take the subway from New York, uh, from Queens to Manhattan to work as a diamond setter. And then from there, she would take the subway all the way up to the Bronx to see my father after work. And then from there, she would eventually have to go through the city and back into Queens to go to sleep and wake up and do the same thing the next day. So like, it was really, really hard for us and we had a really hard time. And if it wasn't for Hyas and um, the Jewish community, I don't think we would have been able to survive. I don't. Wow. I'm assuming you're familiar yeah. with Hyas. Yeah, I, I'm familiar. Okay. I've posted some things from them. Lots of statistics. Yeah, sort of going off of that, like, how how helpful were these different types of organizations, sort of like getting your legal status in order, sort of giving you access to services? Again, I don't think we could have done it without Hyas. I Not just in helping us to apply. So technically, so this is the interesting thing. If the laws that are in place now in America were in place back when we came to America in 1982, we never would have been able to stay. Um, when we first came to America, we came as, um, we came as tourists. We got a visa mm -hmm. to come as tourists to visit my father's brothers like they had done millions of times before that. I don't want to say millions. But my parents had come to America on a number of occasions for like one or two months for vacation and gone back to Iran. So they just got a tourist visa to come out here. But the minute their foot touched American soil, they applied for political asylum um, due to everything that was both going on in Iran and the fact that they were an interfaith marriage and the fact that... Um, we were Jews and it was an Islamic revolution and all of that. So they did all of those applications. They helped to do, you know, they helped to navigate us through all of the things that we just, we didn't speak the language. We didn't know what was going on. Um, and yeah, they, they helped us and held our hand through all of it. But in addition to that, when my father got sick and my mother was having a lot of difficulty just helping to maintain, you know, any sense of normalcy for us. And we didn't have money for food and things of that nature. And we would wake up in the morning and there'd be a box of food outside of our door. And, you know, it, it was such a, it was such a considerate way of doing it because they wanted to give it to us, but they also didn't want us to feel any shame for having to take it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, it was heaven sent, but it was also, 
extremely considerate and extremely, you know, thoughtful in the way that they did it. Yeah, it's good to know that these organizations are actually like doing some good. Like you hear horror stories, but and I think it drowns out the success stories sometimes. Yeah, no, they they were phenomenal and. Um, over the years when my family's circumstances changed and we were able to give back, it's funny, I still volunteer with HIAS and my mother used to um, volunteer and help in any way that she could years later when she was in a position to be able to help. Sort of going off of that, was there anything that your family mentioned or talked about, like being very surprising when they first arrived in the States after, you know, leaving Iran and traveling around for a bit? No, because they they had traveled here before, so they they knew the country and they had been to New York in the past and it was just it was extremely different coming here as a refugee as opposed to coming here as a tourist. I think when you come as a tourist out of your own volition and you know you're staying at a hotel and you've got money to spend and you're doing all of those touristy things it's a completely different experience than coming in as a refugee normally going into a lower income neighborhood um, having to live amongst a bunch of diverse people that you probably are not familiar with at all they were petrified. It was New York in the 80s. <laughs> it was not safe at all. Um, and yeah, so they put me in, they put my brother and I in Hebrew school um, because they were petrified of putting us in public school because they just thought that the Hebrew school was better. Now that I'm an adult and I look back to it, the Hebrew school that I went to <laughs> It was mostly immigrant Jews who were leaving their countries um, because of the oppression. And so everyone was similar to me in the sense that they were refugees in America as well. Some were from Iran, some were from Poland, some were from Georgia. So like they, some were from Israel. They were from all over, but we all shared this common thing which was one our parents were petrified to put us in American school systems and two we were all immigrant Jews who were a minority in whatever country we came from and were living in this kind of crazy fearful world of what people do to Jews. I feel like that's something cool about New York there's always like an immigrant community of like pretty much everywhere like, I feel like every country can be represented. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially Queens, it's the most diverse out of all five of the boroughs. And that's where we grew up. It, it was kind of awesome in a lot of ways. But then um, my oldest brother went to public high school because um, the school that my parents found for us wasn't charging tuition. They were doing it on donations that other Jews were giving um, to give children a Jewish education. And so my brother ended up going to public school. And unfortunately, one of his crazy friends ended up stabbing him in the back one day for absolutely no reason. It turned out he had um, mental issues. And my parents were like, see, we were right. Like, this is a terrible, horrible, no good place. 
and then pick this up and move this out to Long Island because suburbia was supposed to be safer than, you know, the city. Gating the timeline a little bit, like how long did it take from like when your parents landed on U.S. soil to like actually getting asylum status and then from there becoming citizens? Oh my word, I can't even tell you. I can tell you that I have no clue when we got our asylum status. It took forever though. I do remember it taking forever because I don't know if you're an immigrant yourself, but like the youngest kid is always the translator, right? Mm. Because my brother was older and he was not about hanging out with my parents, right? And all of these forms had to be filled out and all of these things had to happen and they didn't speak the language, but the youngest kid is normally the first one to pick up the language. Mm -hmm. So I started in America when I was in pre-K. Um, and so I spoke English and better than anyone else in my family and I could read and write in English. And so I was the one filling out the forms and. I swear I was still doing it at like 12 years old or something. So I don't know. Wow. It must have That's been late into the 80s that we finally got our green cards. And then I didn't get my citizenship until until 1999. Hmm. I guess so what was that process like? It was just like proving that you've lived here long enough? or? Um, well, we had the green card, so... It was just simply applying for the citizen uh, for the citizenship. I just never thought to do it prior to that. And then in my senior year of college, um, I wanted to do a study abroad, and I realized that I don't have an Iranian passport because uh, when we left Iran, we left on illegal passports, and so. Um, because my father used to forge the passports because it, it said that you were a Jew, they wouldn't let you leave the country. So he would forge the passports to um, make you not identify as a Jew. And you used to have a family passport in Iran back then. So you didn't have individual passports. You had a passport for a mother or a father and three children in one. And so we didn't have a passport. And then I was suddenly like, oh, wait, I got into school so I could go abroad, but I don't actually have the paperwork to be able to go abroad. And so I ended up having to delay my, um, my semester abroad for, I believe, a year in order to be able to finally get my citizenship. Because, I mean, the process took about a year and a half, I think. Yeah, that makes that sounds about right. Yeah. Where'd you, where'd you end up studying abroad? Oh, I did semester at sea. Well, that's cool. I think I've always so wanted awesome. to do that. I just saw so many different countries. Yeah, we started out. Um, well, we flew out to the Bahamas, and then from there we boarded the ship, and then we went from there. We went to Cuba. We were the first um, large student body to land in Cuba. Um, because of the laws that had changed that allowed students to do student exchanges. And so when we got there, suddenly like CNN's shoving a mic in my face saying, <laughs> how does it feel to be in Cuba? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't gotten off the boat yet because I was just a sassy little girl, wasn't I? 
Um, but yeah, so we went to Cuba, Brazil, South Africa, Kenya, India, Malaysia, Vietnam, Hong Kong, mainland China, Japan, and then we came back to the United States. All in 99 days. Wow, wow. so it was like a three days per city? Like, pretty well, so that's cool. Yeah, I mean, we averaged anywhere between three to five days per country. Hmm, that makes sense. Circling back to your migration journey, like you sort of, you know, you were born in Iran, but you lived most of your life here in the United States. So I guess, how did you navigate between your Iranian identity and the American one? Oh, I used to joke and say that I was Iranian at home and I was American outside of my house <laughs> because, like, to this day, if you come to my house, um, I've been taught all of the traditional things that I'm supposed to do. So, like, you come to my house, there's no way you're not going to get food served in front of you. I'm definitely going to put something to eat because, heaven forbid, you think that I'm a horrible person who doesn't care about you and doesn't want you to eat and drink. I know how to serve tea properly like a good Persian girl. Like I know how to do all of these things and yet none of them clearly identify who I am as a person. Um, but then on the flip side, I was raised in America. I consider myself a New Yorker 100%, but I'm still not American. There is something distinctly immigrant about me, who I am and my experiences. I think I identify more as an immigrant and as a New Yorker than as an Iranian or an American. I totally get that identifying as a New Yorker. It's definitely a unique experience, especially when you leave New York, you don't, you don't get it until you do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also just because when I tell people I'm a New Yorker, the assumption is you, pro you or your parents probably immigrated from somewhere into New York, right? Like, yeah, there are very few families who are like, oh, yeah, I'm like five generations deep as a New Yorker. Like at some point, they either grow tired of New York and leave or, you know, something happens. Like the whole thing about New York is that it wears you out, you know, you come in one generation, maybe two generations, and then you're like, I want the easy life. I want that big house. I want, I want all of those things and I'm going to leave New York City because why am I dealing with this hustle? But I think as an immigrant, New York is the best place to be because you will find the community of your people regardless whether that community is based on your ethnicity, whether it's based on your you know, native country, whether it's based on your religion, whether it's based on your sexual preference, it doesn't matter. You will find a community that you identify with in New York and that community will support you. It will always support you. And that's the thing, it, you know, and sometimes I feel like that's what Americans are actually missing out on. Um, is that sense of community. So a lot of immigrants feel that sense of community from being amongst their own. Um, I never felt that in the sense of being among, like I, my parents moved to Long Island to a neighborhood that was predominantly Iranian and Jewish. And I never felt comfortable there. Like that, mm -hmm. I, I knew that that's not who I was. Um, every one of my family members, most of my cousins, I think, barring one or two of them, married 
Iranian Jews. And, you know, that's, they just kind of went deep into that community and the culture and it, it defined them. And it was the life that they wanted in the community that they wanted to be a part of. And that was never, that was never it for me. But New York still gave me my sense of community. And granted, my sense of community was like a Benetton ad. And again, I have no clue if you know what Benetton is, but... I do not. Back in the 80s, Benetton ads were like one black guy, one one redheaded girl, like an Asian guy, and a white girl with brown curly hair. You know what I mean? It was just like like there's a mix of colors. Um, And yeah, I mean, that was my community in New York. I would, I gravitated towards refugees. I gravitated towards people who, like myself, felt like they were one culture when they were in their home and a different culture when they were out of their home. And um, even though you probably didn't have the same national background, you had the same experience. You had parents who were petrified of what America was going to do to you, not okay with all the freedom that women have, like all this crazy shit. Oh, um, probably can't say shit. Sorry. No, you, you can, you Said can, it yeah. twice now trying to stop myself from saying it. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think immigrants tend to get it. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. that's why my big fat Greek wedding, you know, every, every immigrant family is like, oh yeah, I have an uncle who thinks everyone, everything was created in their country or whatever. (laughs) So like, I don't know. I think it's that shared immigrant experience. And I think that's, that's something in New York that you have. And I think that it's hard when you don't have that. And I think people gravitate towards that. I can imagine it being very difficult with at least having somebody who could relate to your experiences or at least, you know, having school be one way, but your parents like school was this way back in my country and we did this and we did that. Like it's very, it's very tiring. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it, it totally is. And like, I broke barriers, barriers. It was absolutely insane. The amount of shit that I got in trouble for, I can't even begin to tell you. Like, legit, I was allowed to have a boy call my house when I was, I don't know, in grade school. I guess somewhere between, I don't know, sixth or eighth grade is when you start talking to boys or whatever. So boys would call my house. And my aunt and my uncle were pissed. They were legit angry as hell with my mother when they found out that my cousins who were coming over were talking to boys on the phone because they were not allowed to have boys call the house over that. And like my mom used to let me do sleepovers, which was absolutely unheard of for both of my cousins because how how are you going to let your daughter sleep in a house with men that you don't know who are not family? Or um, I graduated high school six months early. I got a job working at a shoe store in the town that I lived in. And um, the owner of the shoe store had a ton of money. I have no clue what he did. I think maybe he owned a hedge fund or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, he took a liking to me and he decided that he was going to help me get into college. And 
he had his secretary help me fill out 25 applications for college. And he paid all of the application fees for the college, which I remember came out to like, I think back then it was like a hundred bucks per application. And it came out to like maybe around $2,000, $2,500. And he paid for all of it. And then I got into school and my parents are like, okay, that's great. Like they were very happy. My mom was always harping on me to get my education. So it wasn't like they're, they were saying, oh, you're a girl, you shouldn't get your education. However, I was not dorming at college. Like, are you crazy? An 18 year old girl moving out of her parents' house? Like, are, are you nuts? So yeah, my parents were not down with that. Um, my brother ended up dropping me off at school and I think my parents didn't talk to me for like a month and then eventually they got over it. But like, yeah, there, there, there were constant battles for mm -hmm. things that you would never imagine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I hate that I'm that old lady now who turns around and says, you have no clue how lucky you are. To like this new generation of Iranian children, you know, they're like, my mom won't let me go and color my hair. And I'm like, bitch, <laughs> please. I wasn't allowed to do and Like, are you kidding me? I looked like a hairy Sasquatch until like I was 21 because, I, you know, I wasn't allowed to do anything <laughs> because they're like, you do that stuff when you get married. Like, Literally, you weren't allowed to date. And I was like, how are you supposed to get married? They're like, right. you know, your parents find you a good match. You go on a couple of dates and then, you know, you decide whether or not you get married. I was like, this can't be it. And you're like, <laughs> cannot be it. Assuming the restrictions on your brother were not on your brothers weren't similar. Um, no, they definitely were not as hard on my brothers as they were on me. But I mean, no, my, my mom was not having it from any of us. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> the best story is um, one day my, I, my two older brothers, one of them was in high school, the other one was, I don't know, uh, I don't know, like five years older than him or whatever. So my oldest brother didn't go to college, but whatever. They're both in their bedrooms and they're both in their bedrooms in bed, fully clothed, mind you, with girls, but the girls are in their beds with them, mm -hmm. like over the sheets, but still in their beds with them. And my mother walks in and goes into one of their rooms and sees this um, and starts screaming like a banshee, like, who is this whore? what is this prostitute doing in my house and then start screaming to my older brother to come and talk some sense to the younger one and opens that door and sees him with a girl in the room and she's like am i running a whorehouse here and she is losing her mind on both of them because of what they were doing because she thought it was absolutely unacceptable but then she's just like what is wrong with these american girls mothers they should not allow them to do this. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it works here. Yeah. 
Those this was the nineties. Oh no, it was uh, it was funny. It was funny growing up. I mean, I wouldn't. I honestly, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But yeah, I'm sure it wasn't fun at some of the times when I was going through it. Absolutely not. I'm sure there there are some good times and some bad times. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it helped build character for sure, for sure. But like. No, it was it was not cute. It was not cute. Like when your friends came over and you served them food and they're like, what is this swamp food? And you're like, are you shitting me right now? Like, is this what we're doing? <laughs> this is normal food. What are you talking about? Because of course you think like everyone eats like you. You know what I mean? You're a kid. Yeah. Like this is the only food you've ever eaten. You assume everyone's eating that shit. And then you go to their house and they've got like... I don't know, chicken and vegetables. And you're like, what the hell is this? Bland ass (laughs) shit that has no flavor. Unseasoned chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I guess overall, sort of reflecting on you and your family's journey, what do you think were some of the biggest challenges? Oh, man. Um, I think it's just knowledge. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. In their own countries, um, they they knew what it was like. They knew what school was like. They knew what getting into college was like. They like I had no one. Had it not been for my boss, I had no one to walk me through what the college process was. My parents, you know, neither one of them had gone to college. My mom, I don't believe, had anything past an eighth grade education. So um, they weren't familiar with any of those things. They couldn't give me the guidance that someone who was born and raised and went through it here would be able to give you. Um, You know, financial knowledge, like how banks work, how credit cards work, how any, like the amount of debt that I went into because everyone kept giving me credit because I started working at the age of 15. So I, you know, I always had money and I didn't know what any of this meant, but that meant that I had started building up credit at the age of 15. And by the time I was 18 and I got into college, my credit limit on my credit cards was outstanding. (laughs) Um, And I was getting these, you know, I was buying everything I want. I had no clue what any of it meant. And I went into a ton of debt that I eventually had to pay off. But like, I think a lot of it is just you don't know. You don't know how anything in this foreign country works. You don't know. Like, I'm talking to my mom now, and the reason why I was talking to her is because I'm actually considering buying a home. And so I was asking her about her experience and how she did it. And I was talking to her about mortgages and the number of points and how, you know, if you have a better credit score, you get a better interest rate on your mortgage and all of these things. And she's like, yeah, you know, we were so dumb. We had no clue. She's like, my mortgage rate was at like 10%. And it was because she had no credit history. And I was like, well, after a while, didn't you, didn't you fix that? Didn't you refinance? Like, why wouldn't you? And she's like, we didn't know. We just didn't know any better. Mm. And so I think the amount of things in your life that would be easier if you had the knowledge and familiarity of it would be massively different i think yeah 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 i feel like it's little things like that that people often forget about that can be so impactful 
Yeah, no, it's it's always the little things because those are the things like that's that's what parents bring into you know raising a child it's it's here's my experience having gone through it and this is what you should be doing like you know it's kind of if you think about rich parents poor parents and you know the rich parents are like oh yeah no if you get this money let's put it into a savings account for you and let's start you know they tell you at a young age to start saving for retirement and these are all things that like if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you don't know about that. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the same thing. Like if you don't know how banks work, if you don't know how the finances work, if you don't know how credit works, if you don't know how any of this works, it impacts every other stage of your life. Like if you if your parent is like my mom is legit concerned that I'm going to get fired from my job every day. <laughs> every day she is concerned about this and then at some point, I normally bring her into my office and everyone's like, oh, my God, we love your daughter. And she's like, oh, they really like you, Dahlia. And I'm like, first of all, why is that so surprising to you? <laughs> like, I am somewhat likable, maybe not to you, but like to others, maybe I play it off. Well, I don't know. But like, she always seems shocked. But she she has that mentality where at any moment all of it can be taken away from you. You know what I mean? And so like, you just, I had no clue how to interview for a job. I had no clue what to wear. I'd like all of those things that you would think that someone, you know, normally you're like, who teaches you this stuff? It's your parents, you know? And they weren't there to be able to teach me any of those things. But on the flip side, I got social skills galore and I can cook and clean because they taught me that. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's some pros and cons. <laughs> so, so on the point of family, and did they like, try to have input on your education and career path and try to, you know, maybe push you down a certain route or were you oh, hell yeah. to study whatever? <laughs> Please. I was supposed to be a lawyer my whole life. Um, I argue very well. <laughs> mostly to get myself out of trouble. So um, in grade school, I used to argue with the rabbi whenever he tried to give me detention for doing something that was not kosher. Um, and I would argue with him to try to get myself out of trouble. And so when I graduated, he told my parents I should be a lawyer. And so my parents kind of clung to that, like, oh, my God. And then... <laughs> four years of being a rebellious high school student where they try to put me in this box and I was like not having it. I would sit there and argue with them about it. And, you know, they would get frustrated because I would win the arguments, but it's not necessarily <laughs> something that they wanted. So everyone really wanted me to be a lawyer. I did not want to spend the rest of my life arguing with people. So that was not an option for me. Um, but yeah, no, my mom pretty much disagreed with every decision I made in my life across the board done. Um, I lived on a ship for three times throughout the course of my life, once at semester at sea, twice on this Japanese cultural exchange program called mm -hmm. 
the Ship for World Youth, once as a participating American youth, and the second time as the national leader of the U.S. delegation. Uh, she was not happy with that. Um, I went and lived in Israel for six months after I graduated college and worked for the Palestinian Human Rights Monitoring Org and the YMCA um, school for their children, which was one of the only schools that allowed Arab, Christian, and Jewish kids to go to school together and learn about one another's cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. At that time, I was thinking of going to American University of Cairo for Middle Eastern studies for my graduate degree because I assumed that um, oil and the Arab world would take over the world. Like I assumed that oil was going to be the hottest commodity. And being as I spoke Farsi and I spoke Hebrew, if I could just pick up Arabic, which should have been easy because it's the same alphabet as Farsi, and the pronunciation would have been easy, um, then I would be able to get a job either in an international company or with an organization trying to help to build unity and whatever. And then I went to Egypt and I got spit on <laughs> as I was coming out of the campus. At that time, it was really bad. It was 1999, um, maybe 2000 in Egypt, and they were blowing up buses with tourists. Um, it was very anti-American sentiment at the time. So I was like, yeah, no. Also, don't want to live in fear of my life every day that I go to school. So I decided against that one. But yeah, pretty much every decision I made, including shaving my head multiple times, did not fly with my Iranian parents. Deciding not to have children was not cute for them either. Um, Although right now during COVID, she's like, good choice. Smart. (laughs) Right, definitely (laughs) smart. Trying to sign a five-year-old up for like a Zoom kindergarten sounds awful. Nah, not having that. So I guess, what advice would you offer to someone who's in the same or similar shoes to you on how to make the most of their experience? You know, like a young person in a new country, sort of their parents don't have any background and they sort of have to, you know, take on the brunt of the work. And I would tell them that, one, it's only going to make them stronger. I think all of those skills that I got when I didn't realize I was getting those skills, like learning how to navigate government offices, learning how to fill out forms, learning how to deal with bureaucracy. A lot of those things helped me later on in life in a way that I never knew when it came time to applying for schools, like not giving up, not taking no for an answer. Um, I think those things helped build those characteristics in you and I think I would just say don't be ashamed to get help there are a ton of organizations out there and there are a ton of people out there who want to help and they they need to be given the chance to help and you need to be open to taking their help because oftentimes one of the things that you come with as an immigrant, because it's one of the very few things that you have, 
it's your pride, you know, and you think that you're too proud to take anything from anyone. And you don't realize that one, the person who's trying to help you is likely getting as much out of it, out of helping you as you are of getting help from them. But also it's just the people who help you, you could one day be in that position and you may one day be able to help someone else. So it's okay to take help. It's okay to join these organizations, to find the community that's right for you, that's a good fit for you. Um, I have mentored for a ton of organizations from Big Brothers, Big Sisters, um, Everyone Wins, um, I mentor. I've done so many of these volunteers, Habitat for Humanity, all of them are a group of people who are passionate about something who want to make the world a better place. And it's, you know, one organization may not be the right one for you and the second one may not be and the third one may not be, but the fourth one's gonna be the one. And that's gonna be the one that helps you to be who you are and to be the best that you can be. and you know, take that help. And when you're in the position somewhere in the future, give it back. Well, very well said. And I'm glad uh, once again, that these organizations exist and that they're doing such good work. Speaking a little more generally, is there anything that you wish people knew or just understood more about immigrants just in general? That in years past, they were immigrants at one time. It makes me laugh because um, people hated Italians in New York and people hated Irish people in New York, and then people hated Jews in New York, and then people hated the Russians in New York, and then people, like, with every influx of immigrants that come in because of whatever is happening in their country, they were hated at one time before they became, they were the oppressed before they became the oppressor. So if everyone just remembers that at one point, no one other than Native Americans were here. So everyone, everyone who's come to America has come to America to leave wherever they came from. And if you're privileged and you're fortunate enough, you came here by choice. But a majority of the people who've come here have come here not because they've wanted to, but because they've had no choice but to come here and just have a bit of humanity. Like this, this country and the move was hard enough and difficult enough. And my mother never saw her father before he died. Her sister's dying and she's not going to be able to ever see her before she dies. And She's not seen her family. She's not gone back to the country of her birth. She, you know, Mm -hmm. these are really difficult things and they leave their countries never knowing if they could go back and sometimes never being able to go back. And their lives are hard enough without you spewing your hatred and your fear and all of this nastiness against them. They're just, they're human beings who just 
want what's best for their children like most other people again very well put and i think it's something that people in the united states need to remember a little more that again the native like you said it very well the native americans were the only ones who were here first yep and they hardly have any of the land right and then the u.s likes to gloss over that too oh please we're good at glossing over it all that's true so off of part of your response, do you ever see your family wanting to go back to Iran or is the United States pretty much home for now? Like, can they even go back? Yeah, so I think the last part of your question was the best part of your question. Um, I would have gone back to Iran if I could have. Um, and my mother would have gone back to Iran if she could have. But my mother is not a wallflower and when we first came to america she was so outspoken about her hatred of khomeini and the islamic revolution that she somehow ended up becoming president of an organization trying to reinstate the shah's son back into power and this got her blacklisted in iran and yeah, that's that's why she's never been able to go back. She is petrified of me ever going back there because the truth of the matter is I can tell them that I have an American passport and that I'm an American now. But as far as Iran's concerned, you can never give up your Iranian citizenship. So if I go there, America has no recourse because... I, to them, I'm Iranian. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, we don't have an embassy there, right? No, we have an intersection, but not an embassy. I think, like, we work through the um, the Swedish embassy or Switzerland or something like that. But, no, we don't have an embassy oh, wow. there. And they're really, I mean, with the way that they just kidnap people for absolutely no reason just to be able to leverage some sort of trade like iran is famous for doing that they'll arrest people for no reason and literally just keep them in jail for years and years as a negotiating chip or bargain you know um so it's it's hard it yeah i would go back if i could but i can't i'm like you would still go Oh my God! Yes, I would. I absolutely that makes, that would. Makes sense. It's your home. It's like you want to. You want to see it. You want to experience it. Yeah, and I mean, I am probably one of the most liberal people that you've met, um, with a ton of liberal views. But I very much respect that when you're in a country, you abide by their laws. And so, mm-hmm. when when I was in Egypt, I was not trying to wear tight clothing. I was wearing bag baggy like loose fitted t-shirts cargo pants i had my head shaved at the time so i didn't really have hair to show but i would still put on um a bandana over my head or a hat over my head because i understood the culture of where i was going into and it was the same when i was in oman you you know you understand the culture and you respect the culture of where you go and you may not share their beliefs but if you're in their land you abide by their laws and so i have no problem going to iran i 
as as someone who just loves to travel, there is so much history there. Um, there, it's such a beautiful country. I would love to be able to experience it, but not enough to put my life in danger. Yeah, def- definitely makes sense. <laughs> I, I hear you there. <laughs> not enough to die for it, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've had quite the career and experiences across the globe. You travel so much. Do you think this is like, have you had like, an innate curiosity about the world? Or do you think your immigrant experiences just made you, I guess, more attuned to learning the different cultures of the world? You know, that's one of the things that my mother and I spoke about all the time. Um, because I don't know how much of my my inability to stay in one place and constantly want to immerse myself in other cultures comes from having lived as a refugee in multiple countries as a child or how much of it is me just being that way by nature like I I may never know but I know that I I have very fond memories of being a refugee um Again, like I wasn't in school, so I didn't know any better. But my mom, she didn't want us to be, you know, in the house all day. And so, for example, when we were in Italy, we we would walk around and we would see all of the beautiful buildings. And we went into church and one day we saw everyone lined up and we're like, wonder what they're lined up for. So we went all the way to the front of the line and then they gave us a little cracker and we're like that was a really shitty cracker to wait on line for that long <laughs> turns out we got communion but like who knew? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, when did you guys realize <laughs> i mean probably years later <laughs> but like between the muslim and the jewish background no one knew shit about christianity to know like oh yeah that's what they're waiting in line for we just saw everyone waiting in line and we're like you know you see a line you get in it because something good is at the end right but no it was just the dry cracker i started going off of that the u.s is well i feel well new york has a significant jewish population and muslim population the u.s is still you know christian centric i guess how is that for you and your family i'm personally agnostic um, I, I can't say that I'm an atheist because, you know, to claim to be an atheist and say that it definitely doesn't exist is, I think, as stupid as being able to say it definitely does exist. I'm smart enough to realize that I have no clue and I don't really care one way or another. Um, I, I think that at its core, every religion is good and all it takes is humanity to fuck it up. Mm. So, I mean, I was raised, I was raised in Hebrew school and a ton of people can sit here and tell you all of these things that, you know, Jews are against women and why do the women have to cover their hair and why do the women have to dress modestly and why this and why that. And I could tell you how at its core Judaism respects women more than it does its men because historically in the Bible Jewish women have always had a stronger will than men have. And you know, men went back to idol worshipping when the women try to stop them. Those are the reasons historically why more is expected of a woman because 
they're supposed to be better. They're the ones who bring in the holiest day of the year, of the week with the Sabbath. They're the ones who light the candles to bring the Sabbath in. Like, they, at their core, at their core teachings, Jesus' core teachings, all of them are good. It's just that people come in and screw it up. That's a great explanation for religion in general. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate, but true. Because, yeah. I mean, like, how do you take anything that Jesus taught you and then turn it into what America's turned it into? Honestly. Oh, yeah, no. This, <laughs> that's like, great. do you want to your brothers? Like, seriously. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dahlia. We're coming up at the end of the interview, and it was so great hearing about you and your, your story and your family story. But, like, is there anything that you want to shout out, or do you have any questions for me? How did you get involved? In, in this like, podcast, this like, what interested you about yeah. immigrants so much? Yeah, so I'm ch well, half child. So my mom was born here, but she was, like, the first of her family, like, first of her cousins to kind of be born here. Then my dad was born in Jamaica, so I was pretty much raised in sort of that immigrant bubble, like you said, about New York. Like, I grew up in a town on Long Island that was mostly immigrant-centric, so lots of my classmates were just, you know, Caribbean immigrants, South Asian immigrants, Central American immigrants, or children of them. So I just always had that interest and like curiosity about the world and then in college I did a work study at the study abroad such international student office so you know kind of my day-to-day -day was like looking at these OPT forms and helping people you know navigate that process and try to help them get jobs and internships I just like learned that it was like a much tougher experience for them so I think that put a little into perspective in my eyes and my school was just also heavily international. So my first year I made friends from the Netherlands, from India, from, you know, all over the world. So like most of my friends are international students as well. So, and then finally <laughs> I took a class my senior year called Migration and Refugees and that kind of opened the academic lens of migration for me. So I really learned that it was a whole academic field. It was very interdisciplinary across so many different paths and people truly study this stuff. So I think the combination of all those things and then I'm into podcasts I always wanted one I feel like I, I could have a podcast doesn't seem that difficult mm -hmm. so I guess all the stars aligned and I got this idea and <laughs> here I am oh that's awesome this is, see a very long-winded answer but no that's fine um I wonder do you do do you speak to people who immigrated by choice as opposed to by need yeah, so like that's like the whole, I guess, point of the podcast. I wanted to really flesh out what migration means. It's not; it can't be understood by one story. So, and I've interviewed international students who've come here for school, but then you know their visas expired. They have had to go back. I've interviewed people who are just like economic migrants who just wanted a better life and just better opportunity. So yeah, it was, uh, I'm trying to get like a lot of very different experiences. Try to explain migration. Oh, sweet. I had a friend um, who I met on the Ship for World Youth uh, Cultural Exchange Program, and she was from she was one of the delegates from Sri Lanka, and then I was obviously a U.S. delegate, and um, she ended up getting into what was it like Yale, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to say Yale. Anyway, she got into Yale, and then. She came to school here, and I thought that was awesome, and I went out to meet up with her. And she told me about how, you know, she was going to go back to her country after her schooling was done, and I just started laughing. 
And she's like, why are you laughing? And she gave me the whole brain drain talk and mm. how the Western world is taking all of the smartest people from these countries and she wasn't going to be one of them. And I said, yes, yes, those are all wonderful things to say when you've just arrived. Let's see where you are four years later. Right, um, when you have a job offer or something. Yeah, no, she ended up uh, going to law school, becoming a lawyer, falling in love, getting married, having kids. Um, <laughs> she's a dean now. <laughs> Um, she's a dean of a, or did she leave? I think maybe recently she left her job being a dean, but, um, yeah. And then when I went back to her and I said, I told you, and she's like, how did you know? And I was like, honestly, for as difficult as it is, and as much as you hate it, one thing America has that no other country that I've been to has is opportunity like if you want it bad enough you can get it whatever it is you can get it if you go after it if you're don't give up and it may not be exactly what you wanted but you will have success because this truly is the land of opportunity it's been great speaking with you and you thanks so so much, much sweetheart And reach out if you need anything else. Oh, of course. Thank you so much.